Uh, I'd be I'd be really upset if a doctor walked in with truth and method. It was just like, don't worry, we're just expanding the common ground of understanding. I hear you, I see you. Like, sir, cure me. What's left of philosophy? I'm Will. Here with me today is Owen. Hey, Will. And Lillian. Hi. So today's episode is not like the others we have done in the past. Insofar as this episode is actually going to be part one of two that we are doing on hermeneutics and utopia. Today we are discussing Hans George Gadamer's 1983 work, Praise of Theory. The next episode, which will be available for our patrons, will focus on the work of Ernst Bloch. These two episodes are meant to be listened to together. So if you would like to hear part two, we encourage you to go to leftofphilosophy.com and click the support button. Before beginning our discussion, I would like to say a little bit about the rationale for pairing Godmer and Bloch together, as well as give a brief overview of some of Godmer's ideas from his most famous text, Truth and Method. Godmer and Bloch, it seems to me, have similar outlooks insofar as they both contest the idea that truth can be reduced to the methods and epistemological protocols of the natural or hard sciences. Godmer, in Truth and Method and Praise of Theory, insists that the human sciences should seek to understand ourselves as finite historical creatures that can never attain a God's eye view of reality. Block, for his part, as you will see, but um, I will leave more of the block discussion for next time. But Block, for his part, distinguishes between the cold or hard scientific streams and the warm or human scientific streams of Marxism. Neither disavows the knowledge that can be produced by the hard sciences, but they contest the notion that understanding our social being is the same as the technical knowledge one may have of a theorem, mathematical data, or physical laws. To put it plainly, for me, I think most Marxist leftist critiques of utopia follow from a prejudice, and for Godmer, as I will uh, show, it is a prejudice that does not name itself as such, towards the natural sciences that misunderstands utopia as an interpretive activity. Insofar as utopia is not calculable or does not accord with the method of Marx, it is thought to be either a necessary or an active impediment to socialist transformation. Just real quick, nothing annoys me more than people quoting the one line Marx has about utopia and taking that as a sufficient argument <laughs> about what utopia means transhistorically and all of that. But I think you know, part of the point there is you know, Godmer's worry about some methodological thinking is it becomes simply about applying rules rather than you know, um, attending to context and you know, attending to what a concept is trying to say to you. Turning to truth and method for Gadamer, this posture is the legacy of the Enlightenment's quote, and uh, here I'll be quoting from Truth and Method, quote, prejudice against prejudice, and its faith in the, quote, absolute self-construction of reason, end quote. Gadamer claims that in the Enlightenment's drive to release reason from superstition and immaturity through the methods of the natural sciences, it ended up mistaking the social and historical character of our capacity for reason, and that, you know, social and historical 
historical character is that fact that the prejudices of history and tradition enable me to reason in the first place. Rightly or wrongly, Godmer pegs Descartes' method of radical doubt as symptomatic of the now contemporary hubris that reason can ground itself. And Descartes also comes up at an important point in praise of theory as well. Godmer notes, however, that even Descartes left ethics outside the circle of radical doubt. Godmer's point is that reason could not even produce the knowledge that we find in the hard sciences if it did not have some basic understanding, a prejudged or prejudicial understanding of the world in which we live. Godmer's favorite example is of reading a book. We could not even begin to make sense of a text if we withheld all prejudgments, all ideas of what the whole of the text could mean. We begin reading and understand the text on the basis of how we assume all the parts fit together harmoniously. None of this implies I cannot find out I was wrong or change my mind, but my experience of error will not be in escaping the prejudices that I've inherited from history and tradition, but in seeing how they are pulled up short by the text. I must be open to letting the text speak to me rather than imposing myself on it. This theoretical experience, this way of seeing, is not the product of strict methodological rules that I choose to follow by my mastery of reason, but by my fundamental openness to listening, my acceptance of my basic finitude. Here we find the normative edge of Gadamer insofar as he sees the domination of method as an inhibition to grasping social life in its historical and dialogical character. To repeat, none of this is to say that Godmer rejects science. It is to say he rejects the methodological character of the hard sciences as appropriate to the ethical constitution of social life. I think this is the irreducibly liberal element of Godmer's thinking, insofar as he holds the importance of not imposing predetermined ends on social life or theoretical understanding. You know, he, he makes a lot of hay out of it. It's the liberal arts. It is not, you know, the scientific arts. And by that, he means it is important that this art of understanding is free from the idea of ends whatsoever, that it should be taken as an end in and of itself. And what I see him doing there is he's very worried that you know, type of methodological thinking is a is a mode of instrumentalizing social life as if it already had one concerted predetermined end. In other words, it's the loss of a type of pluralism. I, I think for Gadamer. Instead, we must see that this dialogue with those who are other than me, and uh, for those who are listening, those who are other than me for Godmer is other people, it's other traditions, it's also um, the text can be other than me. For him, hermeneutical existence is basic to how I engage with life. You know, we must see that this dialogue with those who are other than me has no necessary end except the creation of a common ground where we can understand one another. And it is here that Godmer breaks decisively with Bloch or any utopia as such. We are unavoidably finite creatures, and the form of reason that follows from the method of the natural sciences seduces us into our, quote, prepossession with the technological dream and our obsession with emancipatory utopia. The emancipatory utopia, for its part, is beginning to look more and more like the trauma of a freedomless world bureaucracy, end quote. If reason can truly free itself from history via the imposition of rules, then it seems as if at some point science will allow reason to release itself from all limits. Godmer thinks this can only lead to disaster and asks, what needs to be restored if we want to survive? 
Well, surely nothing but the consciousness of our real situation in the world. What we really have to do is alter our consciousness. The world must be known as something other than just a world of unlimited possibilities, end quote. For Gadamer, hermeneutics allows us to never forget that, quote, history does not belong to us. We belong to it. Long before we understand ourselves through the process of self-examination, we understand ourselves in a self-evident way in the family, society, and state in which we live, end quote. And so uh, I will wrap it up there. And I think what, you know, what is going on in much of the essays and praise of theory is that you know, Godmer wants us to take seriously our limits, our finitude. And he, uh, he tends to think, and there are several places where he actually talks about utopia rather negatively, that he thinks that we are seduced by a utopia of reason that thinks that actually the world can just be whatever we want to make it, that the world can be endless and that we can be the ultimate masters in determining of the ends of the world. But he thinks if we rigorously understand ourselves as you know, really circumscribed and formed by history, what comes with that is a type of humility that's necessary for engaging in the, the dialogue of social life. All right, I will um, stop it there and open up to you all. What jumped out at you in the text? What did you find interesting? So I, I'd like to know, so this jump between like, method and like d determining or dictating the ends of the world there is something really extreme in that leap for me and okay i i'm gonna re i'm gonna back up there are a series of questions that are motivating this text and i'm i think some of them motivate me and others don't motivate me so like the things that motivate me might be the question of, of pluralism. The things that don't motivate me are like this, again, I feel like I'm a broken re record. I'm really sorry to our audience. <laughs> but like this kind of like Cold War way of being like, oh no, the bureaucracy is coming to get us and we're engineering <laughs> social reality to mm -hmm. fit predetermined ends. I just, I just feel like homies, that has spun out of control that we do not need to worry about the bureaucracy at this time we um we need a little more like we need some reining in as it were maybe a little um, more order. so i guess yeah. maybe a little more order i'd say but so i'd like to kind of ask like what is when you say there's kind of a normative thrust to this that it's a worry about forsaking pluralism like what what is a way of being worried about this in 2022 that could make sense to me Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah, so like what like what like like reanim like how can I reanimate re have the thought reanimated for myself? Yeah, that's a, a really a really good question. Um yeah, I think what's really interesting is that yes, this text is from the nineteen eighties, and I don't think it's incidental that there is a type of Cold War edge to it. And he does, you know, uh in one of the essays we talked about start talking about, you know, the differences between the West and the East, and he thinks that the problem is that they are converging on this notion of bureaucracy. So how about this? We could reanimate the question when we look at how some people in power look at the economy. And what the economy demands that we do to social life. Uh, for instance, you will have someone uh, who is uh, one of our great heroes in the Democratic Party, Larry Summers, saying, "What we need what? are I, I know, like, yeah, that's meant to like make people jump out of their seats, like who? <laughs> Not him." 
you know, we need, uh, I think he said something like five years of unemployment at 5%. This is what the economy needs in order to bring inflation under control. And this is in no way, shape, or form concerned with the, the pluralism of values of mi what millions and millions of people might need. Instead, it's this idea that there's this, you know, abstract object called the economy. And, you know, here is the one method and of apparently supposed to be uncontestable of, you know, of what you know needs to be done to social life. And so someone like Godmer would say, how is it that life became so available and vulnerable to being dictated by these so-called hard economic laws that we must you know, submit ourselves to, that you know, seem to offer themselves as non-prejudicial, as simply strictly speaking, you know, not a product of some historical value, but you know, are dictated by the cool calculation of reason. So off the top yeah. of my head, that's the example I would go with. Yeah, I think that's a good example because I think you can one way to because I, you know, that standard stood out to me as well, Lillian. But I think one way to maybe save it is to say that what he's talking about is bureaucracy and his worry about bureaucracy is a worry about like this one subspecies of reason and our rational capacities that come to dominate the whole sphere of rational human activity, right? And so it's something like technical reason or something, you know, he distinguishes, he goes back to Aristotle, right? He distinguishes yeah. between theoria, just like pure thinking that is liberated from having to worry about the function or the purpose of the results of that thinking. And on the other extreme, you have like, art, like the actual technical, the creation of things, the, the making of stuff. And in the middle, we should have something like praxis, like our actual practical action on the basis of practical wisdom and reflection on the ends for which we do create things, the, uh, you know, the purpose mm -hmm. or the function of those creations. And so what we get is just like, yeah, a, a kind of technical reason that does away with that middle point of reflection of like, why are we doing any of this? We've talked about this a number of times on this show, like mm -hmm. the, 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 the constraint that is put upon us collectively to ever be able to genuinely ask, like, why the hell are we doing all of this? Like, I know that as we explored with Lukacs, there's like hyper rationality within a limited sphere, but then this mm -hmm. other rational, like rational questioning and deliberation about the shape of our social totality that's unavailable because that's already taken care mm -hmm. of by technical, you know, by, uh, by technical reasons. So, uh, yeah, I, I think maybe, yeah, if you, if you see bureaucracy as like a subspecies of, you could put the market in there as well. It's like a force of some, for, some set of immutable laws that we mm -hmm. are expected to obey in our practical social lives, but that we're never actually able to subject to questioning. I mean, just look at mm -hmm. like to give a concrete example of this recently, like look at how the markets are taking down Liz Truss. The, her premiership is probably coming to an end because of a set of like constraints by the market. And then like on one hand, you know, we hate the Tories. And so it's fun to like celebrate that she's being that her premiership is being destroyed by these so-called objective forces, uh, market forces. Mm -hmm. But like. It, it kind of stings also because it reminds us that we don't have, like, let's say we had a socialist agenda that we were trying to push through and all the same stuff would be happening. Oh, the, mar you know, the markets are not responding favorably and then we'd be constrained back into our, like, 
you know, little sphere of in which we're allowed to maneuver. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little bit away from the original question, but yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, um, just, just to build off that a little bit, I mean, what, what's kind of funny is, you know, um, I think it was maybe Liam on, on Twitter. He's like, so are we going to get a general election now? And, you know, when you're looking at what's happening with the markets and Liz Trust, the market's already having their general election and they are they are yeah. voting against Liz. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, point, to, yeah. to be more concrete, though, especially with something like, you know, the reason why I brought the Larry Summers example is what's not made available is you know, um, the idea that Larry Summers is interpreting the object of the economy as if it has some sort uh, of end that is unquestionable. You know, um, as if it's not available for us to understand that, you know, our understanding that this thing called the economy has this particular end is not something natural. It's not something ahistorical. It is, you know, descended from a type of prejudices that I imagine Larry Summers in his social context has that, you know, he is imposing as if they came from, you know, the absolute, you know, what he called, what Godwin calls the absolute self-construction of reason. And so I think at least, you know, part of, of what Godmer is saying here, his worries about bureaucracy, is that it doesn't allow us to engage in a type of dialogue or a, a listening that would allow us to be to be disagreed with, for you know, to allow our ends to be available as an object of critique. That you know, to go with what Owen was saying, to ask you, know, is this you know, what we want? Is this what we need? Is this you know, harmonious for our social life? And so he's really worried about reason, thinking it can just slip itself out of historical and social context and make decisions from, from outside. So I, I see the point and I see the concern. What I'd kind of like to know is what is distinctively being offered by Gadamer as a response to this. So like something you mm. said that I hadn't thought of when I was reading it that there's this irreducibly liberal part to Gadamer, this kind of infinite openness. And maybe I've just been like talking to people who are interested in deliberative democracy recently, but like there is this way that philosophers try to say, okay, yeah, we can't impose ends on people. We can't impose the good life. Let's, let's like give up on that and be infinitely open, not in a necessarily in the hermeneutic sense, but like, politically we're going to have all these procedures but the procedures are going to like facilitate deliberation and whatever is reasonable is going to be what amounts like comes out of our openness mm. and this does seem to be i think irreducibly liberal insofar as like that openness still doesn't get me questioning the the things that you want to question like when you're in a liberal context and you're all just deliberating and it's like, I, I am just being reasonable and I am open and the text can speak to me. I'm not sure like what the ground, like the grounds are for being like, hold on, this openness is being shaped and constrained by something mm. that I can't quite deliberate about in the open, which seems to be like what, we are dealing with in capitalist democracies. Mm -hmm. So in a way, like mm -hmm. I worry that like openness can like run cover for a closed system that is open relative to certain values and certain things. And like, I actually think he seemed pretty critical of like the capitalist economic system. Like I was actually surprised given 
what I used to, what I remember from Truth and Method in grad school, which is the last Same, time I actually. read Gautamer. <laughs> I was actually a little bit surprised that he's a bit more critical than that. I just wonder, like, I don't know, thoughts, like, what's mm-hmm. the basis for being critical? Like, what, are there deeper norm- normative commitments than, like, openness is kind of, like, good in itself? Yeah, my my best guess, that's, yeah, that's a really good point. So um, Gothamer, there is a way of reading, especially praise of theory. Gothamer is is deeply worried about the effects of, of, of capitalist constraints, the effects of having ends imposed upon one. But I think, you know, he also understands, you know, capitalism as irreducibly um, instrumental and um, alienating or isolating. That was, you know, one of the last essays that, that we read. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, the, the deeper source of value you, it, it goes back to um, what Owen was talking about with uh, what is it, a phronesis, practical knowledge. So for Gadamer, the hermeneutical consciousness, you know, when you know it is trying to understand. On the one hand, it is constrained. He doesn't think that we can simply get ourselves out of history, tradition, and prejudice. But it is also you know open to um, analyzing what it is that the this context demands of me now. And so for him, these constraints aren't meant to be simply invisible. They're not meant to simply um, be um, transhistorical. For him, the normative value, he, he talks about the beautiful, that, you know, he thinks that, you know, this practical activity is, you know, it's geared towards, you know, um, realizing some type of harmony, some type of, uh, of harmony that... Um, I can understand myself through, but I understand as not having an end towards something else, say an end towards surplus value, but is an end in and of itself. And so I think the critical posture for him is to be able to see how our social life attempts to reduce all sort of practical thinking to simply instrumental thinking, simply to an end that we did not choose rather than a, a sort of an end in and of itself. So I think he thinks that there's a different type of value of totality and harmony at play than you find in capitalist social life. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. I think also, like, I can't speak as much to the normative constraints because I don't really know, but I, there's definitely a sense in which the kind of open, what we're calling here, liberal uh, deliberative process is constrained historically in a way that maybe it isn't, it constrained by one's historicity in a way that maybe it isn't for liberals. Because, you know, this whole idea of getting over the prejudice against prejudice and understanding that like your historical, your specific historical prejudices are not like your limitation on understanding, but they're actually your opening onto, they're how you can engage with horizons other than yours, including historical horizons other than yours, right? How you engage with the past. Instead of trying to be like, oh, I'm gonna understand the past objectively, or I'm gonna understand some, I don't know, some text or some other culture or something objectively from some like neutral standpoint, it is your set of like located prejudices that are actually your opening onto engaging with things that are alien, except in a finite way. You know what I mean? You'll, yeah. you'll never be able to like master that alienness. And so, like, I guess if you're start, if you think about it, like, in, I don't know, if you think about it in politics, the idea would be that you start from, you can't just like create political projects in your brain or with a few friends or something. But then, you know what I mean? That you start from mm-hmm. a set of like cultural and communal constraints, ways of understanding and valuing, and that you, it's on the basis of those and the alteration of, you don't leave them the same, obviously, they don't have to go unquestioned, but Mm -hmm. you have to like start from that self-evident world that you share with other people and then 
expand that, like bend that, alter that, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, but I think, you know, to, to build on that, that real, real quick, I think also it's now clear to me the stakes of the question. And, you know, I'm again, uh, you know, uh, my interest isn't like trying to say, you know, Gotham is like a crypto Marxist or something like that. I actually mm-hmm. think by the end of this two part series, it'll become quite clear why he's not. But that that doesn't mean that he's not really interesting to read is mm-hmm. that also for Gadamer. His issue with, you know, let's say the, the method of capitalism is that capitalism does not intrinsically understand itself in terms of finitude. It understands itself as always overcoming its own limits. It understands itself even in its kind of, you know, death drive as, you know, actualizing even what is impossible. The idea of expanding infinitely that, you know, there should not be places that capital cannot go. But for Gadamer, especially what you were um, uh, talking about there, Owen, and we haven't done an episode in Habermas yet, so I don't want to say too much, but Habermas is worried that there is, you know, a kind of intrinsic conservatism to Habermas or not um, to, to Gadamer. And so mm-hmm. far as for Gadamer, this um, activity of hermeneutics is actually about, you know, confronting that not everything is possible. It is about, you know, confronting that I can, you know, only engage with other cultures, other forms of social life in terms of, you know, the, the enabling prejudice I bring to bear. But that doesn't mean that at some point everything I, I desire it will, will be available to me. That also does not mean that at some point I will not be constrained by, you know, the, the history that I've inherited. And so to say this rather quickly, I think for Godmer, it's really important that we understand our limits. And what he sees as the problem of bureaucracy or a type of method of the hard sciences, you know, run amok is, you know, the infinite overcoming of limits. The idea that finitude is what should be uh, moved beyond rather than a very condition of what this earthly human social life is. I'll say polemically in order to, you know, to, to provoke other people listening Fair or unfair, obviously I think it's rather unfair, a critique of of Marxism or the productivism of Marxism is that communism promises a life of unbounded plenty. That the the dream of, of Marxism is an idea that at some point technology will get to a place where we won't have to deal with these, you know, these limits, this scarcity that capitalism imposes upon us. And some people will say that is in um, a disavowal or an escape from humanity. And I think Habermas would be somebody who holds that type of position. Okay, so how do you know what your limits are without a method? <laughs> okay, so if you are a worker in the U.S. and labor laws are very difficult. They are very hostile to you. It is very difficult for you to win a union. You have to win an election. It has to be approved through a board. Then you have to force your boss to the bargaining table. It's a mess. Okay, so you have to ask yourself, what is it that I can do to to shift this? Like, there are limits here. They're clear. But one interpretation of these limits might be that you don't organize a union and you organize some other representative body that doesn't bargain for wages and shit. It's more like an association. political, like a nego- an association, a works council, like something that isn't really about the money. It's about like having a voice. Like mm. there's a way you could democratize the, un- mm. the, the workplace without doing what unions do and it wouldn't be worthless. 
And what is it without a, a method for like understanding where you, some end, like where you want to go, what is going to expand freedom right now for, for me and my coworkers? What is it that like is going to tell you what the appropriate way to think about your limits are? Because there are limits, but there's a perspective with which you can perceive limits that, and that's like, I take what we're debating about. So like, like that's, that's kind of the basis to have something like normative principles to debate with people about what your goals are. And then some of your activity your, is going to conform to those ends. Otherwise, the openness is intrinsically conservative. I mean, I, maybe I'm just saying that provocatively, but I feel like it mm-hmm. could be. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering about this like domination of method thing, because I'm not sure what makes the openness constructive without method. Yeah, I think another way to to ask the question is, you know, so it, it can seem as if your Godmer's suspicion of method is so, okay, all right, you want to constrain the natural or the hard sciences to this particular sphere. And to reiterate, Godmer does not want to throw out the natural or hard sciences. He thinks that, you know, they are a very important element uh, of social life. What he does want to say, you know, one could say is, um, so this thing that you're calling hermeneutics or hermeneutical consciousness, is it just... Is just freewheeling? Does it just you know, operate however or, or whenever? And he clearly, he does not want to end up in that position. So how can he do this? How can he get at what whatever he thinks truth is without some sort of method that, you know, kind of frames the, the end that you, you want to get to? So I think to answer this this question, I think for him, what constrains it as an activity is you know he's going to focus on the the importance of of experience, the importance of not only being able to um, experiment, but also to be affected by and vulnerable by what is, is other than me. When I think about it, you know what you're asking, Lillian. I think what I'd have to say is I don't think Godmer has a um, satisfying answer for you because I think for him the value is on something like dialogue. And so, you know, sure, perhaps wages can be a form of dialogue between me and the person paying me. But I think <laughs> what he is interested in, you know, uh, it's very strange. I guess money talks, sure. Uh, but I think for him, he is. Talking Talking about a a type of of ethic of how we live with one another, and that means that something like an association where I I develop a voice with other people, I think, you know, for for Gadamer, that would be incredibly important. And there wouldn't be a reason why he would say you shouldn't do that uh, instead of, you know, militating for higher wages. I think his critique of, you know, sort of labor exploitation is downstream from how it interrupts and frustrates the experience of dialogue. It it creates conditions of isolation. It reduces um, the human being to something calculable, to a thing that you don't have to listen to or learn from. I'm drawing from truth and method here. Where you know he thinks that there are, there are three ways of engaging with someone ethically, and and I'll just say this really quickly. The first way that he thinks is the absolute wrong way is to try to reduce the human person to something absolutely predictable, calculable, to something who's that's simply a product of nature. The next way, and I think people in relationships can kind of you know, harmonize with this, is 
trying to know your partner better than they know themselves so you can already guess what they're going to say to you even before they say it. In other words, you are open to the other person, but you're not really trying to listen to them in the new context that come up. You're you're simply just trying to get out ahead of them and you kind of you know, completely reduce them to your own understanding. The third way that he thinks um, is most appropriate is you know, being willing to encounter that person anew each time. And so for him, he wants to ask, what is in our social life that prevents us from having that experience of you know, encountering another person, being surprised by them, you know, allowing them to you know, show us that what we thought we knew was true, in fact, was not. And for him, uh, you know, to say this rather quickly, that is the ground of sociality for him. What allows us to actually encounter other people as surprises rather than encounter them as competitors, rather than encounter them as absolute strangers or encounter them as mere data that I need to you know, um, resist, evade, or move around. Yeah. He says at one point that like, so I, I think that he would think of when he just like this example you're giving Lillian as an instance of politics, which he says deals fundamentally with power. And he says at one point that like politics involves an obsession with ends. Like that's what it, it is. It is a kind of in that way, almost a, maybe the application of method in a certain way is appropriate when it comes to politics it is obsessed with finding the means to achieve a certain end. And he says, you know, it's true. I am, I am thus obs so obsessed. I can't the, leave yeah, ends alone. I fucking ends. love ends. <laughs> yeah. I want to get to the end of this. Come on. <laughs> and then, you know, and then theory is liberation from ends, like not having to be uh, not only not obsessed with ends, like you, you're not beholden to ends or to let alone the means to achieving them. But then I guess that there is, again, this the phronesis, like this kind of practical wisdom, which would, I guess, have a place even in the example that you're giving, which is what he describes as sort of like um, finding a balance between the obsessive pursuit of ends and being liberated from having to think about ends. And you, mm -hmm. I guess that is the sphere in which we think about like what, well, one, you are acting from a way that is context specific. I mean, unionization in Alabama is not the same as in New York or as in Germany. And so you have to draw from a kind of ethos and a specific set of historical circumstances in order for it to be effective. So there's, uh, there's that. And then also like, what are the, like be able to step back and think about what are the, maybe the larger ends of, of a certain union drive? I mean, is it just about wages? Is it about power? Is it, a general strike in view, something wider. Is it a more regional kind of strike? You know what I mean? Like there, there's the, there's the room. It doesn't fully account for something like a labor struggle, but I think there is room for the kind of reason that he sees as so important to practical life, like to find its place there without it being exhaustive of what, of what goes on there. He has this, he has this weird example of medicine where he's like, mm -hmm. you know, medicine doesn't. I was kind of confused by that. Yeah. So here's my here's my pass on what what I think. Because I feel like there are ends with medicine, maybe. Yeah. So like, but he wants to say that there aren't. Like, yo, like, no. Just putting it out there. My doctor should be like, bro, cure my disease. Keeping me going. I'd be I'd be really upset if a doctor walked in with truth and method. It was just like, don't worry, we're just expanding the common ground of understanding. I hear you. I see you. Like, sir, cure me. 
what? <laughs> yeah. But I'll never fully understand thinks... what's going on with you, but we can merge horizons to an extent. You understand where I'm coming from. I understand Mom, where you're coming, where from. coming from. And we have a, like, a yeah. merger of horizons. Uh, I, bet that, I bet that disease sure does hurt. Damn. I feel you. Okay, I'm so not there are you. a number of problems. Politics might be one. Medicine is certainly another. Please continue. But here's my past of what he was saying with medicine. That for him, medicine isn't about getting to some final end, creating something new. It's about restoring the proper equilibrium of the body with itself. And so mm. even, of course, that requires technical knowledge. That requires hard sciences. You, you better know how lungs work if you're going to operate on lungs. But he thinks that, you know, Medicine has a, a fundamental pre-understanding, and I'm doing everything I can not to say the H word, Heidegger, but you know, <laughs> it is here, a, a foreconception of what the proper harmony of the body, the relation of its parts to the whole are. I bring that up because I wonder if there's a way if we, you know, obviously, you know, Gadamer in what we've read says nothing about labor struggles, but, you know, he, he is interested or critical of what he thinks is capitalism producing a fundamental disequilibrium, a fundamental disharmony in social life. And so one could say that Gadamer would understand, you know, a type of labor struggle in terms of, is it able to restore a type of equilibrium that is proper to our uh, understanding of the, the social life of human beings. And so there is a way to have a kind of critique of a type of dominating power that you know, refuses to allow the parts to be harmonious with the whole, that refuses to, that, that doesn't accord, how I, I will put it this way, that doesn't accord with our for conception of what harmony is like. And so, you know, he's able to make this kind of critique of, of you know, capitalism or administrative society because he's saying that it frustrates our prejudices of what a harmonious, you know, life is experienced as. And so maybe there's a way of him saying, and again, this isn't about trying to rescue Godmer for radical ends, whatever that means, but I think he is saying that, you know, we do have a for conception of what harmony is like. And, you and so what hermeneutics as an activity can do is bring us back to that harmony with ourselves and with one another and to be critical of instrumental rationality that, you know, disorganizes us and disorganizes our harmony. I mean, as I'm talking, I, I'll, I'll shut up. I, I've been going on for too long. But, you know, I, as I'm talking, it's just, it's really hard for me to get away with it from what I do see as something really fundamentally conservative in, in Gadamer. I think, you know, for Gadamer, cultures obviously can and should change. But, you know, he's really worried about the technical forces of capitalism almost dissolving, you know, our basis of common understanding, our, our yeah, prejudices. Yeah, he thinks the youth are now hostile to culture. <laughs> yeah, that was really weird. I, um, yeah. I was not expecting him to say that. I mean, was, didn't he say that in 69? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he was like, yeah, I actually thought he said something like, you know, the youth are really hostile to the sort of bureaucratization of life and all of that. And I think no, he was... No, he said they hate culture. Well, he said both. Oh, like, yeah. Wow. He's, I mean, yeah. Oh, he said both. Okay. But isn't this 1969? Like, just kind of post-68 uh, student movement in Germany... He's, I don't know. What, I, I wonder what is. Yeah. We. So, what would it mean for him to say the youth hate culture? Because I thought the dominant interpretation of those they were like they were all about culture. It was all about so hippie culture. The, here's how I um, interpreted that, and I I don't know if it's fair, 
Like, I think that that's where, like, the conservative bit really got me. Because I'm like, so what culture are they hostile to? Okay. Like, the cult, like the culture of their... Like, I'm sorry, Gautamur, if this is just not what you meant. But, like, when people are like, and they hate culture, I'm like, but they were doing lots of culture. People like culture. Movies, new wave stuff. They're all, mm-hmm. like, hippies and mm-hmm. shit like that. Um, yeah, but they weren't reading Goethe. God bless them. But they weren't reading Goethe. So, right. So you yeah, see where so, I'm going with this? It's like absolutely. I mean, it's, it's like it's like it's like Gen X dad being like millennials. They just they don't have culture. They don't have appreciation for things. They're always on their phones. You know what I they mean? they don't even watch Humphrey Bogart movies anymore. Like what the hell is going yeah. on here? I mean, but there is, is a, there's a serious question. So there this like you know helps me draw out why I want to pair Godmer and Block because for Godmer there is a constant importance of history that I think is sometimes valuable for understanding who people are. But I also think that there is fundamentally in Godmer a type of suspicion of of the new and transformation. God is okay with transformation insofar as it can become integrated and reconcilable with you know, the, mm-hmm. the prejudices and the cultures and the meanings that, that we have. The idea of the radically new, of the, a radical reorganization of our social life, I think... Godmer is fundamentally suspicious of that he thinks that you know it, it erodes you know our understanding of ourselves as finite historical creatures in a particular context. So I mm-hmm. guess what I wanted to ask you all is you know at the end of the day with Godmer, do you think? And you know, I, I'm not sure I believe this, but do you think that you know Godmer has a point about being clear on the different you can say methods or practices of what's called the hard and natural sciences and the human sciences? Let me ask it a different way. Is it possible that Godmer is right that we lose something about our sociality when we take almost all of our lead from how the hard sciences interrogate objects, their modes of, of discourse and evaluation and truth setting? That seems to me like you know, what's going on in praise of theory. He wants a type of theory, theoretical experience that isn't committed to particular ends, that can you know, enjoy its own creativity for the sake of its own creativity. He says that somewhere, you know, the type of enjoyment for enjoyment. Like he describes it as the enjoyment of theory, that it isn't immediately mm. instrumental. And so mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you what you'll take about from that because I will put it in my own languages. I think sometimes people have this uh, hostility to Marxism, and I think we've been contesting this throughout the, his- the history. Oh, do they? The the length of the podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, like oh I, I know that's a shock to you. Um, <laughs> but you know this uh, hesitance of Marxism that you know, it. It reduces you know, human social life to simply these abstract rules of, of interpretation such that the plenitude of human life seems to fall out. I mean, we have pushed back against that interpretation, but I think that this is something that's animating Gadamer. Yeah, I I feel like, yeah, confused about some of that. Yeah, confused about some of this because it's got to be the case that there is a division amongst different practices of reason or different manifestations of our rational life. And that the method of the natural sciences has come to play an inordinately like large role in shaping what we spontaneously see as rational or what we think belongs to the sphere uh, of reason. Mm -hmm. But then I also, I'm also like kind of reflexively hostile to 
to some people's honestly, just straight up, like some people, the way that they understand philosophy and distinguish what they do, or even the kind of political philosophy that they do from like the bad kind or something. It's that you often hear this expression is like, well, I'm not, we're not like creating programs here. Like it's not, I'm not a, I'm not a politician making a program for what should be done. I'm just like, like doing and philosophy. I can just say whatever crazy. Yeah. Well, exactly. Cause then I think that, that exactly. That's just it's the joy complete, of theory, baby. <laughs> it's a bullshit. I think 95% of the time, maybe more, it's a bullshit excuse for just like having zero conception of what the stakes of the work that you're doing are or what historical like world they're connected to what like the, I don't know, the practical social milieu in which you, you are working. And it's disingenuous, first of all, to think that certain ends or political purposes don't creep their way in to, to what seems to be the most, um, I don't know, let's say mm. the most, um, for its own sake kind of theoretical work. So this is just mm -hmm. something I've grappled with is that I don't. And at the same time, like I, I don't think that, doing political philosophy has to always be obsessed with showing like why you're doing it and what you, what it's connected to and where you think what it might contribute to or something. So it is a kind of a confusion that I, that I have. And I do think that he helps, like he helps me make sense of it a little bit better. I'm with you. I, there are two things. One, no, I really don't buy this distinction between the natural and the human sciences. I've thought of, hmm. I, I've thought about this like on the surface and it's something that I'm actually quite keen in my in my academic life, I'm like working on this like domination project. In my like set the second phase of my academic life, like whenever I reach there, I'm actually like pretty interested in philosophy of science and like philosophy of social science. And the way the, the more that I've not the more of I don't want to overstate like I've read around the edges of this discipline, and it's made me skeptical that there is a hard and fast distinction between the natural hmm. and the human sciences. And it seems like natural, the natural world is very messy and we are natural creatures. And like the only thing that might really be different is I like, disagree with that, you know, by the way, I don't think we are natural creatures, but that's, that's for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> but like in the sense that like what seems to dif distinguish hard and soft sciences is like, if you think hard sciences are like math, then okay. But they're not like the net, like the natural world is not that kind of object and nor are we. That's what I, mm -hmm. I mean. So we're not like anti-natural, but like, I do think yeah. that like, so I, I don't, I think that that's part of what I don't totally buy about this. So like when we're talking about method, it's like, if you can use methods to understand anything in the natural world, and, and I'm just not very experienced with this. I just need more convincing that you can't use methods to also understand ourselves in the human world so that's like the the one thing i have to say which is a very like insecure point that i don't know if i really want to defend it's just a, a skepticism that i have the second thing is totally in alignment with what owen just said because the flip side of what you just said about people being like i'm just doing theory here is honest to god if i hear one more person just be like how is this relevant to practical life or like what's the relationship yeah. between theory and practice and like how do i take this with me i'm like we are you are in a philosophy seminar mm -hmm. <laughs> like i just sir like sir, actually it's look it's, around we are we are <laughs> sir like, we, we are just read the essence here. chapter of the science of logic i mean <laughs> <laughs> how is this communist revolution like it it's not i don't see what? yeah I don't see what Lenin saw yeah, here. So Not seen some, it. Yeah. 
there's something so boring and repetitive about this concern, the relationship yeah. between theory and practice. And that it's is a the real concern, side, yeah. but like but like the way it continues to get reiterated for me is just not it's not it's not jazzing me like it did, did ten years ago. Let's put it that way. That which is not to deny that like there is a real problem. Like what you're saying is more along the lines of how I think about it. Like, what are the stakes? What kind of world are you living in right now? What are the problems? I'd say, like, what method are you using to, like, collect these problems for yourself? And how is it orienting mm-hmm. orienting your thinking? And whether or not it's useful practically is probably going to be downstream of commitments in that way. So, yeah. in a way, yes, I do think theory, like, I do think there's a place for what Gadamer is, is saying in Adorno. Like, mm-hmm. we, can, we can do mm-hmm. theory, you know, it's not, <laughs> let, let's yeah. not, like, make it silly by being, like, yeah, you're right. There, I see what you're saying. Yeah, there might be a caricature that like that Gadamer and Adorno share sometimes, which is like lumping hard sciences into just like what they call subsumptive, or what Adorno calls like subsumptive, where you just take all the particulars and you just squeeze them mm-hmm. into like pre-established methodological frameworks, and 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 thereby like end up just dominating nature. Right. That's part of the Adornian critique is the, the approach of I mean, it comes up here in, in, in Gotham as well. He talks yeah, about, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be about dominating what is alien, mastering yeah. what is nature. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there is. Yeah. So I, I think that that might be it can it can be true at once that that is a caricature of what the hard sciences actually do. And I don't think it is a useless insight because there are people that I guess even maybe it's like their conception of what the hard sciences do is what's influencing their their own way of approaching social theory rather than the hard sciences itself. And so for them, it's like the hard sciences are just this like vague justificatory framework in the background, but it isn't actually accurate to what goes on like in the hard sciences. And so because there are people like, you know, when they, you know, social scientists that do economics in a way that is very much like super subsumptive. It's just like human beings are these objective like data and like these are the mm-hmm. like broadly pr- probabilistically predictable ways that they'll behave under X Y condition X Y Z conditions, and like we can design models and whatever. Right? I, I, yeah, I think that I think Gadamer's critique a hundred percent applies to that like way of doing social theory. That's just not exhaustive. I think of what social theory is or what the relationship between science and social theory is. Yeah. So I think, you know, to, to come back to, I, I, I kind of like the idea of, you know, closing out and being fair to Gothamer and all of that. I think what Gothamer could be saying is something like, uh, so like I said, his, um his bugbear is, is Descartes and all of that. And mm-hmm. again, I, I include the proviso fairly or unfairly. I know there are Descartes stands out there who think he's been the most unjustly treated historical figure in all of Western philosophy but his issue is someone taking the hard sciences to mean that the actual practice of the hard sciences is you know reason completely cutting itself loose from any sort of prejudices that reason cuts itself presupposition loose from any yeah presupposition is list. And uh, when I taught this text to my students, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, I said, what's, what's funny is what Gadamer could, you could read him as saying is that actually people misunderstand what it is scientists actually do, that they're always engaging in, you know, um, interpretation, questioning each other's, you know, hypotheses, trying to see, you know, what assumptions that the others made in order to try to get at a greater whole. The, the other thing I, I was going to say is that, you know, I think is, you know, really nice. And I, I was, I was really happy to hear you say that Lillian because I I really agree with this is 
There is something also reductive of demanding that theory become immediately instrumental. I have sometimes found myself exhausted where it just feels like, what else is there to say? We all, we all know that the world should be better. We all know that your domination is bad. And it's like, you know, you, you miss yeah. that, you know, there should be well, some of the activity of theory is, you know, developing a broader understanding of yourself. And by that, I don't mean like your individual self. I mean the world in which you are in. And sometimes I can get frustrated when what we demand of theory is to be immediately in the game of politics. If we understand politics as electoral or protest, etc. And you know, and I think you know, what Gadamer would be worrying about is that you know, some of the joy that comes from understanding theory is that it is not immediately translatable to how we think and talk about politics now. And to do that, you miss developing more complex, uh, more uh, a wiser understanding of who, mm. uh, um, who we are, why we are, uh, uh, etc. And so I kind of almost want to make a plea for theory not to be immediately shoved into, so how can I put this in my back pocket and you know, blow up a pipeline or something? You know, I, 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 I think that this actually really ca- captures really well. I'm just realizing this now, like both the concern I was expressing about saying, oh, it doesn't matter what the practical upshot or stakes of what I'm saying is. And this worry about demanding practical, a practical upshot to some sort of application of what you're doing theoretically is that the whole thing is hijacked by. And this is what Gatterman, I think, is really sensitive to. The whole conversation of theory and practice is hijacked by the subsumption of practice under like this instrumental conception of practice practice, right? The idea that like what it means for a theory to have practical stakes is like its applicability, but this is his problem with method. He thinks that's just method brain, you know, (laughs) like preventing us from understanding that there are many sophisticated ways for understanding the relationship between theory and practice that don't involve the question, either the question of like, you know, how do I take this theory and bring it to the streets and make things happen with it? Or the question, or the what I think is the complete bullshit, like uh, disavowal of all responsibility for what you write and think. The notion that, like, oh, I don't, I, that's not for my job to think about. That's for like, I don't know, let political. That theory has no that. application just, whatsoever. It has no, it has no, it has no, like, it doesn't interface with your own practical reality as like a, as a, a writer and a thinker, or with the practical reality of the world that it's going to be inserted into. You know. Yeah, I mean, like, also it's a weird like overestimation of your own importance to like think that you are in your philosophy seminar. We're doing revolution. (laughs) And you're like the constituency (laughs) for applying anything. I mean, like, I hope you, I hope you go forth and light the world on fire as we used to be told at Loyola, you know, like, like I, I hope you get involved, but like, there's something so weird about taking this, this context is like the moment in which you are like deciding how to use use theory. Like mm-hmm, it, it's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. I, I don't know. There's some like there's something so out of sync with understanding oneself in the, in the world as a part of the world in that practice to me. So when it's like, what mm-hmm. what do we do politically? It's like, well, you should have a political meeting about a topic <laughs> with. <laughs> With and dialogue with them concerned there. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and discuss it, discuss that with them, because at no point in doing theory, do we actually like agree on political commitments sufficiently? I mean, maybe 
here we do because we know each other and we have conversations like that are not just in this podcast. Mm -hmm. So like I know what motivates you guys and everything. So maybe we have it comes closer. But like when I'm in an like a seminar or a conference or a panel, I'm like, I did not learn throughout this any of those things about all of these other people. And we're just kind of talking at this much higher level of abstraction. And then you want to ask me what I'm going to do with these people? Nothing. Like, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Grab a drink, I guess. <laughs> what? Yeah. 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 I, I think that that's right. And I, I just want to conclude, like, I, I what I, I take from God and what I think is really nice in him is that there is still value to the theory of uh, – to the work of theory of un understanding and self-understanding. But, you know, you mm -hmm. kind of lose that value when you think that value must be immediately instrumental rather than, you know, you know the, the practice of – developing the wisdom of understanding who you are and the people that that you are you are with and i know that sometimes it's easy to call that useless but i think you know is really worried about setting up the terms of the conversation in the, in that way yeah i just want to say too that on that exact point that on this like self-understanding point that i know as much as we joke about because we were all kind of roughly trained in continental philosophy and although we like to trash it pretty often godmer actually got me a little continental pilled again because there is something mm -hmm. that annoys the crap out of me in a lot of analytic circles, not all of them, which is, I mean, you see it even in just the desire to like get, not even pay attention to like the history of philosophy or, but not, not to see history as something that is essential to doing philosophy right. So like that point about starting from self-understanding, there's actually a ton of work that if you're going to do, I think, honest and rigorous work a ton of work of self-understanding that goes into that. And I don't just mean like your personal exploring yourself. I mean, communal self-understanding, understanding what your class milieu, like the class milieu that you come from, understanding and how that informs your thinking, right? Understanding all these different historical conditions, cultural conditions mm -hmm. that condition thinking. And listen, I know continental philosophers sometimes get just totally lost then and just thinking about everything that conditions thinking and they never do. We are like, so conditioned. They never get thoughts. You know what I mean? They never do the thinking, you know, and that's the part that drives me crazy. Please. Yeah. But there's like a reason that the, that history, the history of aesthetics and also like material history, political history, all of these different elements of uh, like history, aesthetic history and all that, like inform the, the way that, in the continental tradition, which Gadamer is very much a representative of, um, inform the way that you come at a problem rather than being like, I'm just a big brain person who's read other like big brain people. And this is my thoughts about this thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, something that is nice about, look, I won't be too easy on the continental crowd like you, but, you know, well, yeah, no, we can nice go back is, to dragging you know, now. That was just a little interlude of like, yeah, yeah. it was a nice utopian break is that an understanding of ourselves as a community of inquirers and, you know, an understanding that, you know, problems don't just appear to us, obviously, because, you know, we ex exited history. That's the way, that's it the allows point. us yeah, to see problem, why yeah. particular problems become salient and why other problems are not that's salient. The, yeah. And there's such great work in calling that out and showing, wait, that's really strange that you aren't the in. I think like so much yeah. of Lillian's work is like this, you know, is pointing out to like, it seems as if you are naturalizing this aspect of our social lives and you're not seeing that this is a problem of domination or, mm -hmm. or something like that. And I think yeah. that is really, really useful. This is, I think, like also one of the basic, I think, merits actually of Foucault is that like his work, and again, almost to a fault, is concerned with 
how and why something appears as a problem for philosophers to grapple with at a certain moment, or like theoreticians to grapple with at a certain moment, rather than working on problems themselves so much. Yeah, I think that that's, that's like really Foucault's strength. And I agree. I think that is, I, I think you should write a little essay about that being a distinction in continental and uh, analytic philosophy as they are so called, because I think that the conclusion that you came to about like how continental philosophers get like so I'm so conditioned <laughs> that like <laughs> obsessed the con- figuring out how conditioned I am becomes like the problem to the point of where you feel like you're trapped by some Greek element of the Greek language. So you can't think outside of that in 2022. <laughs> or so, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. we're all good. Yeah, so too. like, I'm so conditioned. What do I do? What can I even think about? And then analytic philosophers are like, I can just big brain this problem. <laughs> there Boom. is no problem. You know, I like, can't analyze. Are you no kidding me? There's no problem. I can't <laughs> think about. Yeah. I think this is actually uh, the most compelling contrast in this thing that I have heard. Yeah. And I think that, cause it just really resonates with like, the 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 jarring experiences I have with like both crowds like around analytic philosophers, like normative political philosophers, I'm like, okay, I'm trying to explain to you how capitalism like moves, and like how the world you're building, the ideals you're building are like not loving it, or like it's kind of <laughs> yeah, hard yeah. for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, like like I'm trying to kind of like convince it. you that that's a problem, and it's kind of hard to convince people of that. That, like, historical change isn't just, like, a thing you have to accommodate. It's, like, a thing that should change the way you think about norms and ideals and so on. 100%. And then, like, but on the flip side, the way that I, like, feel so alienated by continental philosophers that are, like, so concerned about... I'm so concerned about my conditioning that I can't even think about historical change anymore, actually, because I can't even see (laughs) past my own conditioning. Mm -hmm. It's like so inhibiting and like extremely, I think both tendencies are like not always politically conservative, but just like really disciplinary on like what we are allowed to like in itself, those become constraints. Anyway, I just like, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that was great. Well, that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, I want to remind you that this is part one of our conversation with Hermeneutics and Utopia. Next episode will be an episode for our patrons on Ernst Block, and we are going to be reading sections of Principle of Hope. And hopefully what I, I will all try to get us to discuss is how Utopian hermeneutics actually differs from the type of hermeneutics you know, that's really grounded in history and tradition that Gadamer offers. In other words, what is a hermeneutics of the future uh, that you know we can analyze and understand as constitutive of ourselves? But I'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Paul Sorensen, Alex Kazensi, Luke Johnson, Matthew Cull, Isaac Larkin, Sarah, Michael Cusack, Sparkles Teaches Fascism, oh, okay. <laughs> Alan Rudy, Karis <laughs> Hughes, Ralph Minicilio, Jacob Reed, Travis Froberg, Hayden Kinney, Joseph, Alex Vocolo, Jacob Meyer, Clayne Zollinger III, Garf Fans, We, Adam Algrim. 
Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. You can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. And don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.